So back in the old days, uh, pre-COVID, when we used to travel around the country, we relied on highways to get us from place to place and from city to city. And highways have had a tremendous impact on the country. Right? They connect places that wouldn't have been connected otherwise. They make interstate commerce easy. They support economic growth in the aggregate. But they also disconnect. That's right. Sometimes when highways were built through cities, they were built right through vibrant African-American and other minority communities, disconnecting these communities from the rest of the city and from economic opportunity. And highways are just one example of how major developments in post-war America were anything but equitable and furthered structural inequalities and systemic racism. You can see the same in development of the suburbs with exclusionary zoning and deed restrictions, redlining and FHA mortgage insurance practices, or the placement of industrial sites, just to name a few. The present-day impacts of these decisions are profound, but there are efforts to counter these inequities through urban planning and community development. And today, we're going to talk about some of those efforts. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to talk about some of the history of planning and development in this country, especially in the last hundred years or so, why it's relevant today, and discuss the themes of equitable development and community impact. And to help us tell the story, we are joined by Carlton Ely. Carlton is currently Regional Equity Initiative Manager for the Miami Valley Regional Planning Commission. He is a former civil servant whose career with the U.S. EPA spanned 20 years, where he worked on equitable development and environmental justice. Carlton also worked with the American Planning Association, where he re-energized their focus on social equity. So really fortunate to have him on the show today. Carlton, thanks for joining us. Corey and Steve, thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast. All right. So, Carlton, there's there's an important story to get into about the history of planning and development. But before we do, let's just start with a definition. So what do we mean by equitable development? Well, by definition, equitable development is an approach for meeting the needs of underserved communities through policies and practices that reduce disparities while fostering places that are healthy and vibrant. The goal is to ensure that when we plan and when we develop, we're deliberate and intentional in responding to the special needs of communities that may be underserved and under-resourced. So that, that's helpful to, to have that uh, laid out. And we talked in the intro you know, about how much uh, has been inequitable over time. And I think you know, before we get into some of the practices uh, today and, and, and some of the things to, to address that, Let's get into the history a little bit uh, and that history of inequity. So can you help us uh, talk through that a little bit? Well, going through history, uh, one, I think it's important for your audience to understand that discussions about equity have gained traction in recent years, but these conversations aren't new. Uh, The need to advance equity in the context of planning goes back 55 years to 1965. And of course, prior to the 1960s, as you indicated, there were a series of regressive policies that were instituted in our country that clearly affected minority populations and minority communities. So exclusionary zoning uh, is one clear example, restrictive housing covenants, the fiscal policy of redlining, the dismantling of viable neighborhoods through highway construction. Of course, people talk about urban renewal as well. And so these policies spanned decades and they contributed to neglect, 
and injury uh, to minorities as well as to their communities. Uh, when I say injury, I mean the ability to build wealth uh, is one of the uh, more obvious impacts uh, that were associated with these particular policies. Uh, of course, you know, one of the issues that characterizes the 1960s was the civil rights movement. It was becoming more prominent. And there were some practitioners, urban planners, who thought critically about how to encourage justice and fairness through the community planning process. So in 1965, Paul Davidoff introduced a term of advocacy planning and thought critically about how should planners respond uh, in order to make sure that when they intervene within communities that they are uh, doing so in a manner that is intentional about uh, addressing issues of race, issues of fairness, uh, issues of justice. Uh, but he wasn't the only trailblazer in this work. Uh, four years later, Norman Krumholtz, who was a planning director for the city of Cleveland, introduced equity planning in 1969. Uh, if you go further uh, forward in that timeline, by the mid-1980s, Robert Meir, who was the director of development for the city of Chicago, under Harold Washington, he introduced the term equity development. And then finally, as recently as 1999, PolicyLink, under the leadership of Angela Gover Blackwell, actually introduced the concept of equitable development. So the important thing to note is that these are perspectives of how professionals, whether they be urban planners or whether they be policy analysts, thought critically about what were gaps uh, in terms of how do we respond to the needs of the public. But it's important to note that they only represent one part of the conversation or one part of the story. We also need to acknowledge the perspectives of citizens. So for example, uh, concerns about the built environment were also raised by uh, grassroots leaders who wanted to support the goals of encouraging environmental justice. Uh, so in the early years of this movement, in the 1980s, as well as in the early 1990s, Many citizens expressed concerns about untenable conditions in housing, land use, infrastructure, and sanitation. And so it's important to note that these untenable conditions actually intersect with planning, and they also intersect with the need to protect public health, safety, and welfare. So the citizens were just using a different set of semantics. They weren't necessarily speaking uh, in a manner where they were using professional terms to characterize what their problems were. Many of them weren't familiar with the, those milestones of regressive policies uh, that led to the outcomes that we are currently dealing with. Instead, they simply said that we have very untenable conditions in our communities that are obvious in terms of housing and, and land use and infrastructure, but that's where the point of intersection actually is in terms of planning and in terms of environmental justice and in terms of issues of equity. In many ways, equitable development is really a place-based approach for encouraging environmental justice. That's interesting. And so uh, so talking about all of the things that have kind of led us to where we are and then and then some of the approaches and, and that there is a history of, of trying to kind of reverse some of that in, at both the kind of the planner and, and community level, what are some of the development approaches that, that can be helpful? Well, one, it's important to acknowledge that it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, solution. Um, so there are a broad variety of different approaches that are being uh, 
applied. Obviously, when we think about place-based approaches, um, there are many. Um, so one, it's important to acknowledge that those approaches are not restrictive. They're actually expansive. Uh, equitable development is an approach. Uh, certainly, there have been some approaches to environmental justice that are community-driven, uh, that are designed to focus on ways in order to help residents to guide the changes within their communities rather than react to them. So I want to acknowledge uh, environmental justice is also an approach. Uh, also, it's important to uh, be mindful of, of certain approaches to faith-based development, where uh, communities of worship uh, as anchor institutions uh, have attempted to fill the voids uh, that may have been left by the public and the private sector especially when many of our urban centers were dealing with uh, periods of disinvestment, uh, churches uh, actually stepped up to the plate in order to uh, be responsive to the needs of their parishioners. And so in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, churches or, or houses of worship felt they had a responsibility uh, in order to uh, express or demonstrate ministry by being community builders. And so, there are a number of different uh, examples. Those are just some uh, that come to mind based on your questions. So let's let's talk about a few things here. One, we defined equitable development, but we haven't yet defined environmental justice. So uh, I'd like to get into that a little bit more, um, and then maybe we can talk about a, a couple uh, a couple examples of of successful equitable development uh, projects that had a big impact. Well, the U.S. EPA's definition for environmental justice is simply the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Again, that's a textbook definition of environmental justice from the, the federal level. Uh, but I think the important thing to note uh, in terms of that definition is the fact that citizens should have a voice. There should be uh, manners or methods in order to encourage greater transparency. Uh, and also it is a definition that is pertinent to the environment, but I think what's implicit is the fact that that definition is also uh, pertinent to the built environment. And I, when I was working in the public sector, one of the things I tried to do was figure out ways in order to thread the needle uh, between environmental justice planning and issues like equitable development, because obviously we could perceive them as being in different stovepipes, but the reality is that there's a great degree of overlap uh, between them. And so, although I gave you that rather uh, formal bureaucratic definition of environmental justice, um, I think it's important to make sure that we unpackage and peel the layers of the onion back so that we understand how uh, the approach is relevant beyond just issues of public health or waste management or public involvement, uh, but also to see that it's also very much relevant to the improvements that we make to the built environment, as well as how do we make sure that underserved and vulnerable populations benefit when we make improvements to the built environment. And I think that's one of the subtle issues that we aren't always mindful of. Uh, one example is to acknowledge that in 1996, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council submitted a set of recommendations to the US EPA in the form of a report entitled The Search for Authentic Signs of Hope. Uh, 
uh, focusing on brownfields redevelopment, urban revitalization, and brownfields. And one of the points that was made in that report uh, was the fact that environmental justice leaders uh, wanted to make sure that as the agency thought more critically about the environmental benefits of urban redevelopment, that they also uh, understood that the best outcomes would only come about through an inclusive process. And if the process wasn't inclusive, then likely the needs of communities dealing with environmental injustice uh, were not going to be properly addressed. So in other words, they may experience the disparate impacts of uh, rapid changes to the physical em environment because they may not be economically resilient. And so I'm offering that particular context because when we say environmental justice, sometimes we're thinking about uh, communities that may be disproportionately burdened by some forms of pollution, but we may not necessarily uh, think as critically about how communities may be disparately burdened by some of the uh, impacts that occur as we make improvements to the physical environment or the built environment. And both of those are relevant. We can't cherry pick. We have to think critically about how we're going to address both set of issues. So, so Carlton, the environmental part, I, I think, um, you know, citing the industrial sites and all, that seems like fairly obvious. But tell me more about the changes to the built environment that you're talking about. Okay. Well, I mean, again, we've set the context in terms of how regressive planning policies or public policies have resulted in decades of neglect uh, in minority communities. Uh, we see that neglect in the form of uh, disinvestment, uh, in the form of vacant properties, uh, in the form of brownfields, uh, in the uh, context uh, that uh, communities may not have grocery stores, they may be food deserts, uh, things of that nature. These are the untenable conditions uh, that I mentioned earlier that were articulated by leaders in the environmental justice movement. So I, the lesson in all of this is the fact that environmental justice advocates or residents who live in communities that are underserved and under-resourced don't have objections to development, but they do have objections to bearing the disparate burden of redevelopment activities that may not be responsive to their needs. And so what I mean by that is when we encourage market-driven development and we start to see impacts in terms of gentrification or involuntary displacement or the displacement of mom and pop businesses or even cultural displacement as cultural assets and heritage institutions are compromised, these are concerns for uh, underserved populations and vulnerable groups. Uh, they want to see the development, they've longed for the development to occur uh, but certainly they have things that they value as well that should be part of the calculus as we make improvements to communities. So in, in the end, development shouldn't just focus on how to be responsive to populations we want to draw into a community. Development should be equally attentive to how do we respond to the special needs of the populations that are already there. And that delicate balance needs to be met. That, that is a, a delicate balance, and that, but that does um, uh, clear things up uh, a lot in terms of like considering really that local community, and it may be cultural, it may be 
um, you know, previous periods of, of, of things that have worked against them. Um, maybe we can move into a, an example or two of, of where equitable development projects have been um, successful in recognizing these things. Certainly. And let me also acknowledge the fact that I mentioned that 1996 report that was prepared by the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. I also want to indicate that in 2006, they prepared a second report uh, that was submitted to the EPA uh, that focused on the unintended impacts of brownfields redevelopment. And as we talk about issues of gentrification, uh, I think we've also noticed that there have been increasing conversations about environmental gentrification. And what I find interesting about that nuance is the fact that in, in 2006, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council's report was actually a precursor to the conversations that we're currently having about environmental gentrification, which means that when we make environmental interventions in order to fix up the built environment, uh, we need to identify ways in order to mitigate uh, those unintended impacts that could burden uh, underserved populations. And so it's interesting that although the NEJAC has never been given credit for that, they were talking about these issues as early as 2006. But you, you asked a question of, you know, clear communities that are doing uh, great work in order to meet this delicate balance. And the good news is that there are a broad number of examples around the country where residents are guiding the changes that occur rather than just reacting to them. Uh, one example is the Regenesis Project in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is a $300 million success story. Uh, the Arkwright and the Forest Park communities in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, at one point uh, were suffering from two Superfund sites a number of brownfield-related properties, as well as the burden of incompatible land uses uh, in the sense that one of the Superfund sites uh, that affected those neighborhoods was a former fertilizer plant. The other was a solid waste landfill. And this occurred because the neighborhoods of Arkwright and Forest Park uh, really didn't have the benefit of uh, land uses uh, that would prevent uh, incompatible uh, uses from being sited close to their neighborhoods. And so as a result, these unwanted uses were directed to their part of the community. By the mid-1990s, uh, one of the residents in the community, his name was Harold Mitchell, started to realize that there were some clear connections between the health impacts that were affecting residents and the pollution in his community. So Harold started to do research on abandoned and contaminated sites. He convened community meetings, but more importantly, he was successful in arranging partnerships. And that included the EPA, the local housing authority, the health department, the state environmental agency. And so over time, he was able to leverage these partnerships to not only address some of the immediate concerns in terms of the health issues that were affecting uh, his neighborhood, but also he was able to create a community development organization called Regenesis that was designed to represent neighborhood interests in cleaning up those abandoned sites, but also to represent their interests in terms of having their communities redeveloped. And so over the span of roughly about 15 years, uh, he was able to initially take what was a $20,000 environmental justice small grant and leverage it into $300 million worth of community reinvestment. Uh, that was community-driven, that was designed to be responsive to the needs of the populations that were there, 
uh, that was designed to uh, uh, manage and uh, avoid some of the problems that we're seeing in terms of involuntary displacement of residents. And also it's a project that has gone on to receive uh, commendations from the American Planning Association uh, through a National Planning Excellence Award. And also it's received uh, international attention uh, from uh, delegations in South Africa, uh, representatives in Korea uh, and other places as this particular model uh, has, has garnered attention, not just domestically, but abroad. Uh, other examples that are worth mentioning uh, include the 18th and Vine Jazz District in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, in 1989, um, the 18th and Vine neighborhood was actually the former heart of the African-American community in Kansas City. Uh, it was a neighborhood that was distressed following decades of disinvestment and uh, benign neglect. Uh, but in 1989, new residents in Kansas City started to have an appreciation of jazz as an art form. Obviously, Kansas City has uh, notable jazz musicians like Count Basie, uh, Charlie Bird Parker. Uh, and so in the mid-1980s, residents started to take a new appreciation of jazz and what that meant in terms of giving Kansas City a sense of place. Also, it's worth noting uh, that the 18th of Vine neighborhood uh, was home uh, to many members of the Kansas City Monarchs who played in the Negro Leagues. And so they had this beautiful history, this beautiful cultural history of music as well as uh, baseball. And in 1989, Emmanuel Cleaver was a city council member. Uh, he realized that the uh, area uh, in terms of the 18th and Vine neighborhood had a place making dividend. And so he wanted to balance the goals of economic development and cultural development. And so he was responsible for encouraging uh, some policies that resulted in that area receiving $20 million in terms of an initial investment in order to focus on developing a plan uh, for that neighborhood. By 1997, they actually built two museums. One was the American Jazz Museum. The other was the uh, Negro League Baseball Museum. And then 10 years after that, by the mid 2000s, uh, there was an in increase in apartments townhomes, lofts, this area that was experiencing the effects of disinvestment started to uh, uh, have a heartbeat. Uh, uh, the fabric of the community was being restored. Uh, they had a wonderful community developer uh, in Denise Gilmore, who was the president of the Jazz District Redevelopment Corporation. Uh, she was mindful of the need to make sure that those cultural assets were protected and valued uh, she went on and received a number of preservation awards for the work that she was doing as the director of the Jazz District Redevelopment Corporation, including some of the adaptive reuse of old hotels and converting them into apartments, as well as uh, saving some of the very early 20th century housing stock uh, that was in place and preserving it as well. Uh, so in order to protect some of that cultural uh, heritage and historic fabric that was still uh, in, in the neighborhood. It was preserved because of her leadership. And what's beautiful about the story of the 18th of Vine Jazz District, as I indicated, is the fact that, yes, they were able to preserve uh, that unique uh, history that is relevant to the African-American community, but also Kansas City has been able to save one of its special places. So when residents 
come to Kansas City, they're able to still go to a neighborhood and experience jazz music being performed live. Uh, there are a number of different restaurants uh, that are in the area, such as, um, uh, I can't think of the name of some of those uh, particular venues uh, right now, uh, but also I believe um, Alvin Ailey uh, has one of their studios uh, based uh, in the Jazz District as well. And so the point is the fact that they have been very successful uh, in preserving a community with an important sense of place and a sense of identity. And they didn't focus on salvaging what was left. They thought critically about the fact that they need to honor and respect uh, this place and to make the investments that were necessary in order to uh, uh, cherish it for the benefit of future generations. So both like such great stories and, you know, the Kansas city case, right. Going, going beyond preservation to, you know, new economic uh, growth and impact, uh, you know, with a lot of benefit. Um, there, one, one thing you touched on a lot in that, uh, in the Kansas city example is, is uh, you know, it sounds like it started with that cultural and commercial uh, aspect, but also included a lot of housing thought and, and, you know, us uh, being here at Freddie Mac uh, obviously have a lot of interest in the housing angle. So, so how do you see housing uh, and in its place in equitable? How do you, sorry, so how do you see housing and its place in equitable development? Well, it's interesting you should ask that question. Um, what, I've been working in this space for roughly about fifteen years, and so when I started around two thousand five, I was well aware of the fact that a number of different interests were having conversations about. Uh, affordable housing, uh, but I did notice a lot of progress. And so when I started focusing on these issues, it was apparent to me uh, that perhaps we need to think in a more comprehensive manner uh, to understand that when communities are uh, underserved and when they want to focus on ways in order to improve quality of life, residents are equally concerned about other issues, and we, they want to make sure that legitimacy is given to those issues, such as the need for transportation choice, uh, the need for communities to be healthy, and that includes addressing issues of environmental injustice, uh, the need to protect cultural assets uh, that are pertinent towards a community's sense of place, uh, the need to think more critically about not only creating opportunities for jobs, but also opportunities for entrepreneurship and restoring the business base. Uh, that may have existed within neighborhoods before uh, the decades of disinvestment uh, took hold. Uh, and then, of course, that leads into conversations about sustainable wealth creation as well, given the fact that there is a very large wealth gap uh, that needs to be corrected. So for me, when I look at it, I look at it as being comprehensive. We have to think uh, about other issues that are equally important. Certainly housing is important. We have to start with it. We have to start there, but it doesn't represent a finish. Uh, and then also when we talk about issues of housing, uh, it's important that we understand uh, that we have to uh, figure out ways in which we can make sure that persons are able to uh, buy in uh, into communities. Uh, sometimes we think about the market forces of supply and demand in the context of housing, but I don't hear many conversations about the market forces in terms of market failure, uh, which means uh, that there may be externalities 
that we aren't mitigating. And so I think when we look at the economic aspects or economic arguments in terms of how do we improve communities, we need to make sure that we don't cherry pick and we only focus on certain conventional arguments like supply and demand, but we also need to have some very serious conversations about market failures and externalities, who's bearing the burden of those externalities and how do we make sure that we mitigate those impacts uh, so that we have interventions that are really gonna be responsive to the needs of the populations uh, whose needs traditionally haven't been met. So Carlton, you, you mentioned market failures here, and I, I think that's a really important point. And you, you talked at the beginning a little bit about how faith-based organizations sometimes step in in, the, in those cases. Uh, so I wonder if, if there's a, you know, a story or a case study there that, that really demonstrates that impact as well. There are a couple of, of great faith-based models. Um, you know, one of the more prominent models is the work of uh, Reverend Dr. Floyd Flake in Jamaica, Queens, New York. Uh, Reverend Flake was a member of the U.S. Uh, Congress. Uh, but in the late 1970s, uh, South Jamaica, Queens, New York was dealing with the impacts of uh, disinvestment. And Reverend Flake, uh, as a leader, uh, realized uh, that there was an opportunity uh, in his neighborhood. And so he didn't look at his community for what it was. He saw it for what it could be. And because there, were, because there were deficits in the community, um, because there were gaps uh, that were left by the public and the private sector, uh, he realized that his uh, house of worship could play a role in filling some of those gaps. And so he created a community development corporation called the Greater Allen Neighborhood uh, Development Corporation. And, and they uh, simply played the role of being a community builder, focusing uh, specifically on what were the unique needs uh, in Jamaica, Queens at that time, including needs for housing. Uh, he was very successful in uh, several construction projects uh, within his neighborhood. Some were housing projects for seniors and some were single family residential uh, projects whereby uh, he understood that uh, if you provide housing for an individual, that's great. Uh, but given the fact that often within lower income communities, there's a need to figure out ways to help residents to build wealth. And so he incorporated into some of the residential development, the opportunity for there to be rental opportunities. Uh, so if you bought a house, you could have a space that possibly could be uh, a rental unit. And therefore, uh, as a homeowner, you could also serve in the dual role of being a landlord. Uh, and so he tried to find ways in order to achieve multiple things uh, at one time. And so his particular model uh, of faith-based development uh, was very popular, uh, especially in the late 1990s. I mean, there are pro other prominent examples, including the work of Abyssinian Development Corporation in, in Harlem. Uh, they were a very interesting uh, community developer and community builder. Uh, they were actually responsible for the building of the Pathmark supermarket in the, I think, late 1990s uh, in Harlem, which represented one of the first uh, economic development projects uh, that occurred in that neighborhood in about three decades. The individual who helped to support that project uh, was Darren Walker, uh, who was a chief operations officer 
for Abyssinian Development Corporation. Darren is now president of the Ford Foundation. So it's interesting that as Darren became president, he uh, took a, he had a major interest in equity uh, being one of the defining uh, aspects of his term as president at the foundation. Uh, but he cut his teeth on faith-based development uh, while working with Abyssinian Development Corporation. Another successful faith-based model is the Central Jersey Community Development Corporation. They, uh, their leader is uh, Reverend Dr. DeForest Sores, who was also Secretary of State for New Jersey uh, when Christine Todd Whitman was the governor of New Jersey. But he has also led a number of uh, housing redevelopment efforts in Somerset, uh, New Jersey, uh, that have uh, been successful and stand out to persons who have taken an interest in learning what uh, houses of worship can actually do in order to be responsive not only to the needs of their parishioners, uh, but also to serve uh, a greater community need as anchor institutions. And so it's amazing the level of creativity uh, that is occurring uh, through such institutions and how they have been successful uh, while facing difficult odds uh, in order to uh, fill uh, voids uh, that were left within their communities because of some of the regressive policies that have uh, occurred or were put in place within our country. That is interesting. And uh, it's it's great to hear, hear these different examples where, where like you say, we, Spartanburg started with some real problems and kind of worked to create something positive from there. Kansas City had... Uh, had um, cultural institutions that were really valuable to keep. And, uh, and then these faith-based initiatives kind of bring us to a point where things can, you know, bring equitable development to, to you know, all kinds of different places, but it really requires kind of a, a, a vision and something that goes beyond what- Well, I think what, the important uh, thing to note about first many of those situation. projects that I mentioned- What, what do you think are some of the things- The result is important, and obviously you're going to be judged move by equitable the development to multiple or by places, the fact that there is an outcome, to be considered. Uh, but it's also important to be mindful of the process, the priorities and the values that were associated with those particular efforts. And so- the devil is in the details, and so it's important to acknowledge that those priorities and values are important. Uh, many of these leaders set clear expectations uh, that the needs of vulnerable populations need to be met. Uh, they also focused on collaborative problem solving and focused on innovative ways in order to achieve the outcomes that they desired. And they were persistent. Um, many of them uh, had to do this work before we had some of the uh, more interesting redevelopment policies that we currently have in place. And so they had to create their own uh, ways to uh, develop, you know, financing methods and had to uh, focus on uh, ways in order to uh, dismantle some of the barriers, policy barriers that normally would have prevented such projects from occurring. Uh, so we are beneficiaries of, of all that institutional knowledge uh, today. Uh, the question that you raise is, is simply, you know, how do we scale up uh, these particular opportunities? And that's an interesting question. Um, you know, from one perspective, we need policies that are going to be clear in terms of their provisions. That is important to advance equity. And we need those policies to be less bureaucratically neutral, in my opinion. 
I think one example of this is in 2009, uh, there was a bill that was introduced into Congress that was not passed. It was the Livable Communities Act. Uh, but that particular act was actually reviewed by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And they found while reviewing that draft legislation that there were no clear provisions for advancing equity in the bill. Uh, it was a very fine piece of legislation for advancing livability, but yet they were aware of the fact that it repeated the same problem in the sense of pushing uh, the need to advance equity to the periphery. In effect, it was rendering uh, the fact that we need to address equity, it was rendering it invisible by not even making reference to it. Uh, that legislation was also reviewed by the Planning and the Black Community Division of the American Planning Association, and they had similar conclusions. Uh, I think the other thing that's important to note is the fact that we need practitioners, we need civil servants, we need public institutions to remind themselves of their obligation uh, to advance equity. You know, planners have a code of ethics where equity is, is an important part of it. Public administrators also have a code of ethics that makes reference to the need to advance equity. Uh, our public institutions are publicly funded and they're supposed to work on the behalf of all citizens. Um, and I make reference to that because one of the mantras that has become popular in the span of the past 20 years has been the need to frame public policy around the primacy of the middle class. Well, if we only focus on the needs of the middle class, we run the risk of thinking that those benefits are gonna trickle down. And I think what we are seeing after 20 years of market-driven developments, the fact that those benefits don't always trickle down to the populations that need help and need support the most. And so it's important that we think more critically about how do we meet the needs of, of populations whose needs have normally been overlooked. Uh, we're in the shadows of John Lewis, former U.S. Congressman John Lewis passing and obviously he's noted for having said that we should identify ways to get into good trouble, necessary trouble, when we see things that are not fair, not right, and not just. And so for me as a urban planner, uh, as one who used to be a civil servant, when I speak to audiences, I often say that advancing equity is about the promise that we make to ourselves as practitioners. And I think it's important uh, that we all continue to remember uh, the promise uh, in order to encourage the cultural change that's going to be necessary uh, so that we can uh, realize or encourage outcomes that are going to meet uh, the needs of a broader segment of the population. But the other thing that's worth noting is the fact that in terms of equity at this point in 2020, as opposed to in the, in the 1960s when Paul Davidoff was focusing on these issues, is the fact that it's now a national conversation. Uh, when Norman Krumholtz was working on these issues, he was only focusing on Cleveland. When Robert Muir was focusing on these issues, he was only focusing on Chicago. I think this is a testament to the fact that PolicyLink, under the leadership of Angela Glover Blackwell, now under the leadership of Michael McAfee, have done a wonderful job sustaining this conversation over the span of 20 years, from 1999 to the present. And so as a result, this is now a national conversation. And when you're having a national conversation and when best practices are being shared uh, and persons are able to access uh, successful projects in real time through the benefit of social media, it helps to position us uh, to 
move closer towards scaling these particular opportunities up. Yeah, uh, Carlton, so well said. And you know, one of the things that that occurs to me as well, just being in the uh, the affordable housing business here at at Freedom Mac, is is you just see how each project, uh, each development, requires so many different uh, forms. Uh, well, of partnership is very important. Along yeah, the way. I mentioned the Regenesis um, project. And so you know, interesting Carolina. to hear interesting you know, from your perspective as a planner and, and uh, the everything we've talked about today. How you to see that tying in as well? Or a model. Uh, they synthesized the lessons from that experience and they created a collaborative environmental problem solving model uh, because they wanted to make sure that other communities understood what level of investment was required in order to uh, turn the needle uh, or, or uh, create the sea change uh, that was necessary uh, within that community. So clearly partnerships are important, whether they be the public sector uh, or also involving the private sector. Uh, in the case of Regenesis, uh, there's a very wonderful community, so, excuse me, corporate social responsibility narrative in terms of uh, one of the uh, industries that was adjacent to Arkwright and Forest Park and how they had an eye-opening experience in terms of how they were a burden on the local community. But through the process of engagement and dialogue, they realized that they needed to be a, a better neighbor uh, to those two uh, uh, neighborhoods that were uh, overwhelmed. And so that was a wonderful thing that, that transpired. The other thing that's worth noting is that uh, EPA has other models uh, that are based on collaboration. Uh, although the program was zeroed out, there's also the CARE model, uh, which stands for Community Action for a Renewed Environment. Uh, what's interesting about the CARE model is the fact that is very explicit and stressing the fact that uh, under-resourced communities need to form relationships with business uh, when they are trying to encourage uh, more community-driven uh, development. And so there are a broad number of different methods, methodologies, uh, solutions that one could pursue. Um, there's not just one way in order to do it, but obviously collaboration uh, is gonna be important. And the important thing to note about collaboration is this, is that collaboration is not a flat line. I mean, I think sometimes we uh, tend to associate collaboration with conflict avoidance, but that's really not the case. Uh, when one undergoes a collaborative process, there are going to be highs and lows. Uh, there's going to be tension. You have to rebuild trust. But I think the opportunities for growth, for creativity, uh, for more innovative solutions are actually within the highs and lows of the collaborative process. And so we shouldn't fear uh, collaboration and we shouldn't fear the tension or the pushback that may actually occur, but instead understand that's just part of the process. And collaborations, of course, can be messy, and, but that shouldn't dissuade us from uh, pursuing them. But we have to understand that those uh, tensions are part of the process as well. And so we shouldn't only focus on collaboration for the sake of collaboration, but understand that we want to encourage collaboration so that we can encourage growth, restore trust, and obviously encourage outcomes uh, that are going to be mutually beneficial for all parties involved.
Well, Carlton, um, this, I've, I've learned a lot today. I mean, I think there's a lot that, that's brought us to the point where we are. And, uh, and there's been work, you know, that's, that's, that's happened, I think, that you've given us a long history going back to the 1960s of, of equitable development. And, uh, oh, again, thank you for inviting me, Steve that, uh, and Corey. You know, what, what we've learned today uh, There's uh, one is, last point really that I would make is when I left that, uh, graduate school can, we can continue in 1998, in right I had a degree in one hand and many unanswered questions about addressing equity in the other. And I have been on this journey because I'm simply trying to get answers to those questions that weren't addressed when I was in graduate school. And I'm trying to compensate uh, for the things that I didn't learn in an academic setting. And so for me, it has been wonderful to have this opportunity to complete my education uh, by studying uh, great work that often isn't introduced in academic settings. We talk about issues of diversity. We talk about issues of representation. And some of these cases that I'm sharing with you, unfortunately, weren't uh, disclosed or shared with me when I was a student. And so I think that goes back to the issue of how we need to understand that there is a lot of untapped talent and successful work that should be part of our dialogue as we talk about how we improve communities. And so I would like to just leave it there with the fact that we all have to uh, pursue these opportunities of discovery uh, so that we can leverage uh, better solutions and understand that there isn't just a one size fits all approach when it comes to improving communities. So again, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Corey. It's been great to be a part of this conversation. Thank you.